0: Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, sharing insights from SVA's work and from across the social sector.
1: Hi, welcome to the SVA Quarterly podcast. I'm Karen Prout and I'm editor of the SVA Quarterly. In this podcast, Elise Sainty, director in SVA's impact investing team, dispels some of the myths and legends around social impact bonds. Elise has spent seven years in the trenches leading SVA's social impact bond and outcomes-based contracting work and over that time has built up a mass of experience. She's helped service providers develop more than a dozen proposals, been at the table during eight contract negotiations, managed five active social impact bonds, worked with eight different line agencies across four state governments, and secured social impact bond capital from 160 investors. Based on this wealth of experience, she debunks some of the myths and legends surrounding social impact bonds.
0: It has been quite a rollercoaster ride being part of the obscure world of social impact bonds while they were largely unexplored territory and everyone involved had to do a lot of making it up as we went along. There have been times of frustration, exhilaration and the satisfaction of complex problems solved. Strong friendships and strained relationships, lessons learnt, sometimes the hard way, and lots to celebrate, particularly when things work out as hoped and meaningful, positive change happens in the lives of those that it's all about. Is it all worth it? In short, yes, but with a few caveats. In this article, I'll expand upon this challenging a few myths in part one, and sharing some of my personal thoughts and prayers in part two about the role that SIBs could play in the evolution of a system that focuses on what is important, uses evidence to shape responses, and delivers for the community. It's worth saying up front that the musings are purely my own, and I reserve the right to change my mind completely as events unfold. In writing this article, I've assumed the reader has some familiarity with how SIBs work and are developed For background information, you can read more on our website. Part 1. Myths and Legends In years gone by, I've sometimes commented that there have been more words written about Sibs than dollars raised by them. The balance has probably tipped now, but it is fair to say the topic has produced a somewhat surprising amount of commentary, with opinions covering the spectrum from wild enthusiasm to downright hostility. Some of those perspectives on SIBs I regard as myths and legends, and I've tackled seven of them in this piece. Myths and legends number one, SIBs bring new money to the social sector. SIBs do bring in new money, but then it has to be given back, so it's not really additional funding. This misconception is fading, but there has been a tendency for people to confuse capital with revenue. For example, they say things like, SIBs enable organisations to diversify their revenue streams. The only time investors leave their money behind is when the program hasn't delivered as expected, which is core to how SIBs work, but is not exactly an objective. Based on conversations over the years, I think it has also taken some in government a while to understand that SIBs aren't a magic source of extra funding, and further, that if you ask someone to take a risk it is reasonable to expect that there is a price to be paid for them to do so. This means that the expected cost of a program is higher under an outcomes-based contract than if you just fund it on a fee-for-service basis. So why would a government bother? The flip side is that payments are deferred until outcomes are measured and at least some savings captured, which has budgetary benefits. And of course, if things go poorly, taxpayers are protected outcomes-based payment provides an option for governments to take a punt to try new things without bearing all the associated risks. I also believe there are some non-monetary aspects of SIBs that do deliver additionality, new perspectives, new data and new discipline. Myths and legends number two, SIBs equal investors profiting from misfortune. This criticism surfaces from time to time and I think misses a couple of fundamental points. Firstly, investors only profit if fortunes improve, so interests are aligned in a positive way. And secondly, it implies that social sector organisations shouldn't use some of the financial instruments that are regularly accessed by commercial organisations, that they should stick to philanthropic support, whereas I think they have every right to do so and to generate a financial surplus if they do a good job. Teasing this out further... The financing component of a SIB can essentially be broken down into two financial services. The first is bridging finance, which is needed because outcome payments are received after the costs of delivering a program are incurred. And the second is insurance, protecting against the risk of an adverse event. And in this case, the risk is that a program doesn't deliver the level of performance expected. Each of those components are valid services that any organisation entering into an outcomes-based contract may require, and it is reasonable that the provider of the financial service, in this case investors, is paid appropriately for doing so. That's the cost of capital. In the Australian context, the largest pool of potential investor capital is superannuation funds. And Superfund trustees have a fiduciary duty to ensure that the returns are commensurate with the risks that they're undertaking. In some cases, philanthropists may explicitly, by providing a guarantee, or implicitly, by mispricing their required return, provide these financial services on a non-commercial basis. I think philanthropic support can be a wonderful catalyst for a particular project, especially if the risks involved are high, and thus, Theoretically more costly to offload. But I do worry, however, about the long-term viability of outcomes-based contracting if it becomes expected that philanthropists will step into the breach. Myths and Legends number three. SIBS are complicated, but outcomes-based contracts aren't. The first part of this statement is no myth, and I'll have more to say on that front in the next instalment of this podcast. And a sneak peek. It doesn't have to be that way. But I do get frustrated when I hear the view expressed that SIBs are complex and expensive, and thus a pure outcomes-based payment model, or pay for success, is a better option. This glosses over three truths. Firstly, SIBs encompass the outcomes-based payment part of the equation anyway, and that is where the development demons have lain as the learning curve has been climbed. Things like getting access to useful data, choosing sensible metrics, determining the counterfactual methodology and figuring out a payment structure that's fair to all parties under a range of performance scenarios. Secondly, governments should be indifferent to how service providers choose to structure their financial affairs around an outcomes contract. Some will have large enough financial reserves that they don't need the bridging finance Some will have large enough risk appetites that they don't need to ensure performance risk, but others will have neither. And unless that last group can access at-risk capital through a SIB-style arrangement or philanthropic support to cover the downside, they will be precluded from participating in outcomes-based contracts. And the third truth is that if a service provider chooses to internally fund program delivery until an outcomes payment is received and they wear the risk that they may not get paid at all, then they should be able to put a reasonable price on doing that. The cost of capital doesn't evaporate just because the capital at risk belongs to a non-profit. It is true that under a SIB structure, there is an incremental cost involved in marketing to investors and appropriately managing and reporting on their investment. But this should be able to be kept to a small proportion of total program costs And that underlies SVA's view that small SIBs aren't really viable. Myths and legends number four SIBs direct more money to preventative programs. So, this is not a complete myth, but I think the claim is often overstated. While most SIBs have a focus on prevention, it has generally been on preventing more of something that has unfortunately already happened quite a lot for the individuals being supported. So preventing more days in hospital or more years in out-of-home care or more stints in prison. These are all perfectly sensible objectives, but not prevention in a purest sense. The further you move into truly preventative territory, so for example working with vulnerable children who have the potential to end up as the prisoners or the welfare recipients of the future, the harder it is to get a business case predicated on government savings to stack up. The core problem is that without brilliant predictive modelling you will need to work with quite a few individuals who wouldn't have gone on to have poor outcomes. The program might still be very beneficial to them, their families and the community, however the pool of future government savings is diluted while the program costs aren't. And a compounding problem, literally, is that the savings generated are many years in the future and a lot of extrapolation is required. Finding the right outcome metric is also much more complex in the truly preventative space. Metrics directly linked to government expenditure, so things like days in hospital, convictions and the like, are often not applicable. And not only do you need, as usual, to identify a metric that has decent baseline data on the current level of outcomes, it also needs to be measurable within a reasonable time period. So for example, school completion is a long way off if you're working with five-year-olds, and then you also need to be satisfied that it's well correlated with savings even further down the track. So all of that brings me to the next point. Myth and legends number five, SIBs are all about government savings. I believe we're missing the bigger picture in framing SIBs as a tool primarily designed to reduce government expenditure. Governments spend money all the time on initiatives that are rightly aimed at improving well-being or community amenity. We don't ask the question, will this family violence support program produce government savings that exceed the cost of the program if the funding is provided on an activity or block funding basis? It's odd that if the funding shifts to an outcomes basis, suddenly that question becomes all important. I'm certainly not suggesting that quantifying future reductions in the consumption of government services, so the hospitals, income support, policing and so on, is unimportant, I am suggesting that value should also explicitly be placed on benefits that don't accrue to departmental budgets. Money doesn't have to be saved to make something worthwhile. This would certainly ease some of the business case contortions that are regularly conducted at the moment and would put the focus on social impact rather than budget impact. As a corollary to the above, I also believe we should be better at quantifying the impact on service utilisation, and hence government expenditure, for programs that aren't funded on an outcomes basis. And some more on that in the next instalment. Myths and Legends Number 6 SIBs are privatisation by another name I cannot speak for the motivations of governments elsewhere, but I honestly have not detected any signs of a neoliberal plot to destroy the public service within Australia. Instead, I see a genuine desire to try something new that might lead to greater insight and better results. To some extent, there is also a desire to respond to social sector pleas to improve the way that services that are already being delivered by NGOs are procured. One of the key fringe benefits of outcomes-based contracts is that they tend to be longer-term and larger scale because you need enough data points to fairly judge outcomes, reducing statistical error. This enables the service provider to employ and train staff with confidence and provides greater revenue stability. There are other benefits that can arise, but they're very much dependent upon the contract management approach taken by government. Less micromanaging of inputs and activities, and more room to innovate and deliver a service that's focused on the needs of those being supported. Myths and Legends number seven SIBs lock out the little guys. This myth has a little truth to it, but it doesn't tell the whole story. The organisations we've worked with to successfully develop a SIB have ranged from the very small, with only $3 million annual revenue to the extremely large, the $1.5 billion annual revenue. It's clearly much more challenging for a small organisation to dedicate the necessary resources to what has to date been a lengthy process, but doing so can be a strategic game changer as Hutt Street Centre in South Australia would attest. I think in some ways it can actually be harder for a large organisation to fit the development and management of a SIB into their existing structure and processes and to maintain the patience for what may, after all, be a very small component of their activities. To make a SIB feasible for a small organisation, a number of planets need to align. Firstly, they need strong board support and funding for the development process, and an appetite for the spotlight. They need a government partner that takes a collaborative, non-adversarial approach to the development process, Otherwise, the power imbalance can be overwhelming. They need an intermediary partner they can lean on heavily, particularly in relation to the technical aspects of SIB design. And finally, they need to have or invest in strong core business capability. For example, robust client data management systems. That brings my examination of some of the myths and legends of SIBs to a close. In summary, I believe that SIBs are not the silver bullet that they're sometimes made out to be, but nor should they be viewed with deep scepticism. And there has been a tendency towards typecasting that could prevent a clear-eyed view of how the principles and processes that are inherent in SIB DNA can have broader application. In part two of this podcast, I'll explore how some of the challenges of SIB development can be mitigated and the significant opportunity that lies in spreading that DNA.
1: Be sure to catch part two of this podcast, Thoughts and Prayers. You'll find it on your podcast feed or on our website.